to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention podcast. Uh, today, I am really excited to have Anneli Birnat with me um, from Wuga. Uh, we're going to be talking about making a new game. And, uh, you know, recently you guys released Switchcraft, which uh, I'm sure you've been uh, pouring all your love and attention into for the last year. How, how long have you been working on it? First of all, hi, thank you for hi. having me. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's great to be first time on a podcast. And uh, yes, so uh, I'm the game director of Switchcraft and um, I've been working on the game since 2019. So I started in the team um, just before we got the go to produce it. Um, so I was part of the team to pre prepare a production pitch for the game. And yeah, I, ever, I, I joined them as a lead uh, product manager. And since we globally launched, I was promoted to game director. And um, I'm still leading the product team right now. Uh, but yeah, soon... Hopefully uh, uh, we get more hands on deck and I can focus on the direction side more. Um, yeah. But yeah, the game is fun. Like it's, <laughs> it's been such a journey with the pandemia, everything at once, like uh, um, so many challenges along the way. My last uh, two and a half years were definitely not boring. That's exciting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, before we do, I always like to, you know, ask like, you know, what is your story? Like, how did you actually end up at Wuga and working on games? So I think I was interested in games ever since, since I was really young. So um, usually gaming was a boy thing when I uh, was a kid. Uh, so my brother had all the gears like a Commodore 64 and a Sega Mega Drive and all these things. And whenever he was not at home, I would sneak into his room and <laughs> try to uh, get to his toys <laughs> and uh, discover that. And uh, I actually started like reading up on the books, like how how do you actually use uh, Commodore 64? And they had some early manuals of how to build a game in it. Um, and I st just started doing that. I just started creating a game on the Commodore back then, very simple things. Um, later, I, uh, when I was a teenager, I started doing adventure games in um, the Game Maker engine. <laughs> so uh, uh, very fun, like writing some stories and trying to build them in, in the Game Maker tool. And yeah, I also, I, I organized LAN parties with my male friends. I was always more hanging out with male friends. So I was kind of the one uh, making sure that there are enough pizzas <laughs> when we have a LAN party. <laughs> You were probably the oh, most yeah. most valuable friend in the friend group, bringing the pizza. Oh man! <laughs> yeah, or organizing the tournaments and make sure that we have nice rewards that are funny for the participants. So, um, this I did already as a teenager, but I actually I never thought that you can make a career out of games. Um, I studied. I worked during my studies in banks, in consulting agencies, and. Um, I was so tired so fast of wearing suits and being so posh up and uh, uh, like the, the, the pace of change was so slow. The tools were so old that we used. And during my studies, I actually focused on renewable energies. Mm -hmm. And right when I finished my master's degree, renewable energies in Germany was almost gone. Like the industry went to Asia, to uh, Saudi Arabic countries or like uh, uh, East um, uh, Eastern countries. So it's not really a thing anymore, a uh, big industry in Germany. And so I had to find another fast paced industry. And after I got my son, I was uh, seeing a post from Vuga asking for playtesters. I'm like, oh, well, I played games all the time anyway, so I can also test. <laughs> Might as well them. get paid for it, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so I came to Vuga with my baby in a carrier, uh, put him on the ground, started testing the games and was like, this is a fun environment. I don't need to wear a suit <laughs> if I can make games. So I just applied for a job as a game analyst uh, back then in 2012. And I started in January 2013 um, and I started working in Perth Peril. That's great. So you're you're one of those rare people that kind of started as like playtesting and, and worked your way up to you know, game director. That's awesome. Wow. And and pretty fast, too. So congrats on, on that. Um, well, we're talking about something today that I think a lot of teams struggle with, um, which is how do I come up with a new game concept 
And how do I iterate on that and actually get to the point of uh, launching it globally? Because even games that make it to soft launch, I see so many like good, fun games that just get killed in the soft launch phase or even before that um, for, you know, whatever reason. Um, so, you know, today um, I'd, I'd love to just go through, you know, your story um, with Switchcraft here. Um, so, yeah, you know, take us maybe through the, the beginnings of the iteration process of like where, you know, Switchcraft, you know, came about, like, were there other good solid ideas like how, how was this one you know iterated on and, and and where did you land initially so i can't take actually um credits for anything that happened in that phase because i wasn't part of the team back then so the team was um there was a game that was already um in like an early concept phase that was killed and the team basically back then um sat together and kind of thought about what are uh, um, interesting uh, um, market trends like um, they analyze not just games but media in general like what are themes that are currently appearing and they used like all sorts of inspirations as I said from movies Netflix like they, they got really wildly inspired by many different types of media books and they would do um, something that's called design sprints and again, here, um, I can't really talk about the details because I wasn't part of this. I could just uh, observe it from the outside. And um, they really try to um, go through different kinds of designs and concepts and then evaluate, was this fun? Are we excited about this? Can, can we believe that this is something that we want to work on for the next years? Do you think this is an, uh, uh, interesting for the audience, right? So there are some themes that may also become like really oh, too narrow or too like they like you get over it very fast and you find it then maybe not that exciting anymore so you really have to sleep several nights over like concept <laughs> team and idea and see if it really sticks with you and the team and I think that's what they did really well back then like uh, um, understand uh, what is like really really interesting and how do we carry on and then they uh, once they were like really excited with the theme and it, it was the magical school theme that sparked lots of lots of different ideas. And they found an artist actually, like an um, artist who, who created drawings only. Mm -hmm. And this art sparked so much joy, as Marie Kondo would say. <laughs> like this piece of art really uh, got stuck with the team. And they like using this really inspired them to come up with these fantasies that they wanted to create. And... Um, this created emotions in the team and these emotions they were able to sell to the management team to get to the next phase mm. and um, I think early on it's really a lot about going deeper into the emotions the the the, the feel that you create um, if you talk about it if you think about it um, does it give you energy does it like inspire you for exploring more within this world and um, I think that was what worked really well uh, early on with this team and setup. Uh, what they didn't know was would there be an audience? And so that's when they did like a very fast prototype. I think they did it in like one and a half months. Mm -hmm. um, and they just put out this prototype um, and uh, have, have it like a few thousand players tested. They implemented I think there was no monetization in there, of course, but there was yeah. like different stepstones where they would uh, send out surveys to the players already in the app. And then they used these surveys for some qualitative data. And um, also they did then some follow-up interviews with players and tried with these players, try to build some early player persona of who would be the audience. And yeah, actually, yep. I was actually going to ask that as you were kind of talking about this, you know, do you guys typically find, and, and I've heard different ways of going about doing this, but I've often heard that you want to uh, design a game for an audience. Um, so do you kind of try to pick the audience before 
going through like these design, I know you weren't quite part of the team, but like, do you, do you try to pick the audience before going through the design themes where it's like, okay, I know that this is the audience of players and these are the types of things that they like, or, you know, I've got some, I'm going to say woman because probably most of your audience is female. So, you know, do I have some woman in mind where like I've talked to her really closely and I know what shows she likes and books she reads and things like that? Or is it more of just like a a trend? What do I hear is going on? Mm, I think it's a bit of a dance. So you first have (laughs) this theme that sparks emotions. Then you try to understand who's actually the audience. Then you have an early picture of who they are. Then you try to make the game features and the theme and the flow suitable to their needs, then you reevaluate, okay, who's the audience now? And I think um, it's it's constant. I think it starts at the very first step and it's still continuing as of now, because um, even though they had a very clear picture in mind at the time when they then finished the validation release, I think since then it still evolved more and more. And also they didn't have all the knowledge about this because like you always have like working hypothesis. Would would somebody that enjoys a choices game enjoy a game with story and match three? Right. Yeah. So these are some some open questions that we keep carrying with us, although we know that um probably a, a, a woman who plays our game is wants to take agency right so a lot of our game evolves around player agency taking agency making choices um not not throwing things at the player but rather guide them and give them the agency to choose things like who do you romance and uh, um, what actions do you make in the match three so we still try to give this kind of room to explore and um I think there were some misleading um, assumptions made early on where, okay, when you say that you want to give agency to the player, they also like challenge. So there are these, like, you you associate traits with certain uh, um, uh, design pillars, traits of the character, and it's not necessarily true. So um, somebody that wants agency doesn't want a constant challenge because in this year <laughs> we're in relax, relaxation space, a space yeah. where our competitors are Netflix because we are trying to sell interesting and deeper stories. And so the person doesn't always want to f- be hyper-focused and challenged in the match three. Mm-hmm. And so um, these kind of things we learn throughout the process of soft launch. Very interesting. Yeah, I know. Um, did you guys use 12 traits at all through the process to like deeply understand your players? And it seems like the the Switchcraft audience, like there could be a decent amount of overlap between like a Pearl's Peril or, you know, June's Journey a little bit. So like you guys probably already intimately know the audience as you've been running these games and working with these players. I think, you know, Wuga, if, if anyone that's listening wants to know how to do community management and like how to engage with the community, like just join the Facebook groups for, uh, you know, those two games, like you guys do an amazing job. Um, okay. Uh, well let's, let's continue a little bit. Um, tell me a little bit about the soft launch. Like when did you launch and, uh, you know, how long did it go for? We started a more technical soft launch. I think like many companies do in, um, july 2020 and back then we actually had technically i think a quite stable game so besides some loading time optimizations i think we never had huge amount of crashes or anything but we saw that there's an issue in um in the funnel very early so we weren't happy with the funnel numbers we started in the philippines and um when you have a game that's so much narrative um it's really key that the audience also speaks english well enough so we didn't have many countries to choose from in the tier three category to do the technical soft launch so we started with philippines but because everyone is doing this especially in match three is so uh, um uh, thought around, uh, thought about. So everyone wants to get these users. 
Um, it was actually already a challenge in Philippines. And um, then we opened to India and that was much easier. Mm-hmm. And no wonder, it was a lot <laughs> amount of players <laughs> there. Um, so um, our real like learnings we then generated in India. And um, in, in about like September, we started the first country, I think Canada. And we again saw that because we didn't know, is this funnel issue now like um, Philippines, India specific, or would we see the same picture in a um, tier one country? So we started Canada and we said, yes, still an issue. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we actually like, that was the time when the numbers really looked bad and everyone had like 100% idea of what's wrong with the game. So I think if you could have asked 100 people in a company, you would have gotten 100 opinions of what's wrong with the game. <laughs> and uh, we, we had like this constant input of everyone, like do this, do that. Like I, I actually felt a bit like Hodor. <laughs> Hold the door. <laughs> like the, the all the messages a bit away from the team so that they get some time and space and understand the problem and analyze uh, what's happening. And I think that's also um, one part that I wanted to mention that in the end, of course, the product is very important, but the team even more so. So I think a lot of the trust that we had throughout the process was because of the team and its strengths and its ability to analyze the problems and to go through uh, difficult times um, and as a, as a unit, right? So behind this door that I tried to keep closed for a moment, there wasn't like fighting and arguing. There was like really like, okay, let's sit down. Let's let's see what ha- what's happening here. Uh, let us play the game. What kind of insights can we generate to make the next bigger move? What can we do in the meantime until we know what's broken to get the meaningful learnings before yeah. everything has changed uh, that we want to change? And so um, we sat down, we made a plan and um, it actually took us until February. So in January, we launched the biggest app, like the big update on the first time user experience. And we started then getting uh, again, a cohort of users in February. And that's when the early numbers looked so much better already. Um, and that's where suddenly everyone was like, hey, cool, you did the right thing. <laughs> and uh, in the time in between, I actually did a lot of audience research with playtest out with um, with Vuga's internal surveys. Um, we did a lot of like iterative testing. And um, when we analyzed the feedback, uh, we realized that uh, especially in, in the company, um, there was very, very bad reviews from male, male colleagues. So you had like the male colleagues and their ratings on the one hand and the female colleagues on the other hand. It was a difference between day and night, uh, how they rated the game. And so we went deeper into understanding, of course, both sides, because yep. just because it's different gender doesn't mean that there are less valid <laughs> concerns. Um, but we tried to understand it better, and um, we also did this extensive studies on Plato's Cloud, and we actually like looked at second by second experience for the FTUE. We mm-hmm. mapped down the emotions and the feelings people have when they go through different sequences of the story, and that was a very tedious process. <laughs> team members were actually also involved in that because we had players play the game over several days sometimes and had to analyze these videos, but it was really worth it. We had to reinvent some of the methods that we can use to understand, okay, what is this emotion that they're showing there? Like the worst thing that you can have in a story-driven game is no emotions. If they just click through it and read, um, if they're like, even bad reactions are good reactions because they're memorable. Like even if they say, ooh, oh, shock, whatever, This is really great because it means that they're engaging with the content that you're providing to them. And uh, through understanding what content is exciting, we actually um, iterated on our F2E several times. So that was the first big revamp, but we still knew those uh, some areas we couldn't tackle yet in the first version. So we went all together in four iterations through the F2E work. Okay. I have like a hundred questions, but 
Um, let's loop back to something that I think is a common uh, thing that I see at places and, you know, even at studios that I'm, you know, working with or advising. Um, so you've got a game that's out there and it's not working or, you know, you don't have the metrics, you know, where you want them to be. Right. Um, and yeah, everyone's got an idea of why it's not working or what feature is missing or like what the problem is. Um, how did you guys go through the list of problems so that you were able to identify what the, the right, or maybe like the real problems were like, would you mind sharing like, Hey, here are some of the things that people thought were wrong and here's what actually ended up being wrong. So first of all, I think the process was for us, um, don't try to, I think the most important step was not forcing yourself to figure out the problem and find a solution right now. So being okay with, it will take us some time, right? And making sure that everyone understands that uh, you can't fix a big fundamental issue from one day to the other. And not knowing the answer right now doesn't mean that you won't know it in the future, right? So I think just being okay with, okay, this is now a process. And we will try to not waste time and resources in between because we still knew, like we had a full feature scope of things that we knew the game has to have a global launch so our devs could continue with uh, a task and so on. And so being okay with right now, it's about understanding, it's about us sorting through and then trying to really get um, information from different channels. As I said, qualitative data through research, um, play the game yourself. So like the entire Leeds team uh, tested the game, played the game, and we kind of brainstormed all the things that we feel is wrong. Then um, we have a channel that's uh, um, accessible for the entire team where we get all the reviews. Like every review that we get in directly gets to this channel and people are reading it and interacting with every review that we get for the game. So back then we already got the reviews. And so, um, we could see, we could filter what are common requests. Um, we, um, uh, uh, yeah, we did the playtest cloud studies and we looked at the data, we looked at the dashboards, we looked at exactly where is the churn, um, which KPIs are the problem, uh, when does it start to go down? We analyzed like by data every minute of the gameplay in the, in the funnel. Um, and we analyzed our loading site. Like we went like, what are, are all the issues and what are evidences that could support one or the other issue, right? And then we kind of as a team aligned, okay, these are the top three things we need to, to uh, um, tackle. And this is the number one thing and let's focus. And then for like uh, a one month, the entire team just focused on the FTOE and said, okay, here we can make the art prettier, there we can take this out, here we can improve the flow, mm. here we can improve the loading times, right? So the entire team had one mission, they understood this is a problem, this is how, how we can uh, um, fix it. And it was like, once everything was in place and people understood the problem and understood where we're going, it was like magic just watching the team, how they really executed on this. But it really starts with, being okay that this is the process and it's okay to not be successful all the time. It's an opportunity to learn and we should really learn and not just assume. Like if you go from, okay, um, three people said it's this, let's fix this, right? And um, if you have like a holistic view like this, of course we knew that some of the early emotions weren't great and the onboarding wasn't great, mm -hmm. but also the level designers say, so, okay, when I actually look at what people do in the match three, we see how we can still improve the match three levels, right? And um, so everyone try to do on their end what they're able to do. And really all these different pieces came together together really well in the end. So I think. Yeah. So, so tell me like what, so you released this kind of first major change in January. What were some of the big things that you guys ended up changing for that release? So our um, content is episodic. Uh, we call it uh, a task, chapter, and book. And um, the tasks, 
like one chapter has approximately uh, um, 24 tasks. And um, we started the book with a, like the book one with a trailer, and then you had these 24 tasks. And people didn't really understand what is episodic content. This is like weird concept for a game. And um, what we and we saw that like we tried to start the game with the like, boom, your best friend is missing. Go look for her. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> that was like the intro. And people were like, who's this person? Why do I care about her? Like, <laughs> it's the characters she's your friend. best friend come on <laughs> and who am i and who's she and she like and then and then you talk to other people about her and other people have different opinions about her she's your best friend but other people are like oh she was mentally ill anyways right so they didn't get a good picture of this friend and so mm -hmm. they felt not really attached to her and didn't know why they should uh, follow after her and so we basically put this book one as in place we also optimized it later on that was an, a follow-up task but the we added an entire chapter zero basically um that gives players a bit of time to get to know their best friend and um that kind of leads a bit up to this big boom that she's gone and um we we um we put some more emotions into it, right? So we talk a bit about uh, the friendship and um, the mental problems that her best friend has. And I think in these times where people are struggling, these kind of themes also resonate well with them and um, they feel more talked to than somebody's talking about something, right? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I think of a lot of books that, you know, you, you open up, the first page and it like throws you right into the action. And it seems like that's what you guys tried to do, but there are some books that maybe take that chapter to kind of set the tone a little bit more of like who you are and stuff. It sounds like that's what you guys ended up doing, which added that cohesion. Okay. That, that's super cool. Um, also it helped us like, because the chapter zero was designed to be more on the point tasks uh, we added like these little interactions that we we saw are really fun for the players early on we made the choices really more meaningful we you know uh, um, uh, we transport the concept of this is a very short chapter and there are more chapters to come and you get a reward at the end of like we also mm -hmm. used like common sense game design patterns of like giving somebody an onboarding experience I think this is something that we also implemented and um yeah but overall the visual quality improved as i said the match three gameplay it's a holistic thing but uh, it's really always coming back to what are the emotions and how does the player feel when they interact with this right that actually leads me to my next question which was you did this second by second uh, emotion analysis of these play tests which i'm sure people are listening to and they're just like cringing like i don't want to have to do that um, but uh, what emotions were you trying to elicit uh, especially in the the first time user experience like yeah what, what were you trying to have your your players feel mm, so there are like um, always these um, beats that you want to have, especially at the end of the task, you want to have a beat that makes them, oh, now I want to know what's coming next, right? And you want them to um, just react. Like sometimes it's the 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 the, the just making a noise with, <laughs> while you read like, Ooh. this is already a reaction where you're like, okay, the person cares somehow, right? And it's, it's not like we want them to constantly sit in their chair and like be scared. It's more like there should be something interesting. They should start asking questions like, oh, who's that hot guy, right? And why is he so pissed at me? So you want to have like these kind of reactions uh, because then you understand that they will be memorable. They will remember. And um, I think that's uh, like we... Um, we also saw the progress we made like little mini clips of how people interacted with the game through the different stages and there were some that were so exciting like we could really watch these videos on playtest cloud endlessly because it was so fun of how they like tried to speak for the characters tried to imitate their voices yeah. and like they had really fun also making the choices like oh there's a task where they could just answer tomato 
and they were like, oh, I want to click tomato, but I want to do the right thing. So I want to be the characters. <laughs> <laughs> this kind of excitement and uh, um, interest, this is something that we wanted to create. I had one kind of final question that you prompted. So you talk about the importance of team and I, I couldn't agree more. Like, you know, people are like, Tom, you do so much. And really, it's not me. It's like the team doing everything. Um, so, you know, within this concept of a team, you know, can you tell me a little bit about your team size when you guys were in this phase? Like how many devs did you have, game designers? Like what did that team look like to be able to, you know, build the game and to iterate on it in this time period? I think for the most time, after we got through the production gate, we were around 25 to at the end, I think 35 people. We had, um, we have every discipline has a lead. So we have a lead artist, a lead product manager, lead designer, a lead writer and lead engineer. And we also have a marketing manager who's within the, the leads group and they work with their teams and the leads are trying to be always aligned on, okay, this is where we're going. This is uh, um, what we're trying to achieve. And um, the team itself, I think engineers, we were six to seven engineers. And I think the biggest part of the team, about 50% was always content production. So uh, only story. Um, we have, uh, we had initially, I think, four writers. Now we have seven. So uh, quite a big writing team with lots of experience and um, yeah, great mix of people. And I think um, one part of the success in this team was that um, everyone is very open-minded to different kind of people because we are all so different. Like, I think we are alone in our team over 12 nationalities. Mm -hmm. um, we have uh, um, all kinds of genders represented. Um, we have um, not yet quite a, a, a healthy balance in all the representations. So it's still majority male, but we have in every discipline, uh, female representatives and um, except for engineering, unfortunately, because Vuga tried to put our female engineers more in, in one team than across the teams, because it's more fun for women to also work with other women sometimes. Yeah. Um, we have uh, um, also very diverse needs in the team, like uh, we're very neurodiverse, um, we talk openly about the different needs. And I think this um, really created early on a high level of trust between the team members because it's okay to be different and it's okay to talk about your needs. And I think this is also shown in the game. Mm. Like Switchcraft has a very diverse cast and not in the sense that we like set down, okay, we need to have this portion and this portion. <laughs> it's more like, think we're trying to tell our story somehow and because we have so di diverse backgrounds um we just are able to talk from certain perspectives in a very natural way and how it is like no no a person in a wheelchair also has a sex life right and this is just normal it's not yeah. something special that you need to like <laughs> uh, uh, scream out there or um yeah it's just some examples but as a team, it was a great effort and these different perspectives helped also to look at the problems, of course. Yeah. So let's actually talk a little bit about Switchcraft because we probably should have done this at the beginning, but I'm apparently disorganized in my brain. Um, yeah. Let, let's talk about this whole idea. I feel like most people, at least had you said like a year or two ago, would have said like match three, like don't even touch it. Like it's over. You'll never get in. And then we saw Royal Match come in and just start to dominate. And then we saw Switchcraft launch and like you guys are doing really well. Um, so let's talk about jumping into this red ocean of match three. Um, what is Switchcraft exactly? Like, you know, what was the vision and kind of take me through, you know, the story, the characters, those kind of things. So Switchcraft is a trying to be a more innovative take on match three. Um, match three has been very focused on um, challenging the player and getting them hyper engaged with all the events and everything. And we did see players trying to more switch off when they play games as well. 
and not every type of match three allows for this very well. So we try to create a game. It's a story-driven match three game. It has an interactive story and um, in a set in a mysterious school for witches. Uh, and this theme and this uh, setting um, creates more um, relaxed, fantastical atmosphere where people mm. can truly switch off and like forget about their daily conundrums. They can um, play the levels to relax, like the re we designed the sounds to be relaxing, we, we designed the pacing to be relaxing so that you really have like me time <laughs> and <laughs> uh, um, quality time, right? It's not like this, um, I do random things. It all has a meaning because uh, we, we themed the match three in a meditation sense because that's what you're doing. Like you meditate, you take your mind off of the daily stuff and you just enjoy yourself for a moment and you also we also try to add a bit of like reflection with the story right the the characters as i said they represent us but they also reflect what's happening in the society and uh, um, the witchcraft is not any witchcraft it's not harry potter witchcraft it's the wicca witchcraft and the Wicca witchcraft is very uh, close to earth, to um, nature, to interacting uh, um, with everything in the more spiritual and healthy way. And this is something that I think is just very on top of the minds of young women at the moment, right? How do they place themselves in the environment in a healthy and a sustainable way? And um, yeah, I think this is this is what Switchcraft is trying to achieve. And we didn't see any game actually aiming for this yet, even though the match three space is very um, mm -hmm. bought after uh, and it's very competitive. It's <laughs> I sometimes feel insane that we're even trying. But the feedback from the audience and the the reviews that we're reading kind of carried us through the process because so many people say this game is my new favorite game this is the best match three i've played this is like exactly what i've been looking for why can't more um, uh, developers look for my needs right why is it so why is this the only gem that i find that's so uh, inclusive and lgbtq friendly and uh, um you know so we think that we have found something there and still a huge struggle so i won't lie um it has not always looked good for us and we are still trying to really find uh, um, more growth hopefully in next year um it's it's a bit insane but it's we we believe that we have uh, this raw gem there and i talk about raw gems um to my team a lot because if you have something that looks bad and you try to fix it in various different ways and you don't see any kind of reaction of the kpis then you just have a game but if you change something and it, you see the uplift that means you might might have this raw gem that you just need to polish and and and, and uh, work with to actually make it shine mm. and um yeah, we have now had several updates where we really saw uplift in various KPIs that made me believe like, okay, we might have the raw gem here. We just need to work even a little harder in the next year. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, within match three, I feel like you really have to have, you know, expertise and the level design needs to be just like so spot on. And to monetize well, you've got to like, end on those moments and, and maybe you guys monetize differently but most match threes the the plus five moves is, is the key monetization moment right and so you've got to design the level so that you know consistently players fail with the you know two bombs really close to each other and they're like oh oh i, I worked so hard and i finally get that moment and i just want to pay a little bit right now and then i can have the you know the the pleasure of blowing everything away and beating the level that i worked on and i earned this and i deserve it um uh, so you know let's talk about like match three and stuff like i i, I know that wuga has done a little bit in the past but 
historically you guys have done more like hidden object type stuff. So um, did you guys have a match three engine? Did you build something by scratch? Did you try to hire a bunch of people or like, yeah, well, what did that process look like? It's funny that you say that we were historically a hidden object company. We were not a hidden object company. I think Vuga was a um, matching and simulation company in the past. So we started off with Monster World. I don't know if you remember this. It was a huge simulation game um, then we had uh, I think one of the next hit games that we have was a bubble shooter it was called bubble island mm -hmm. uh, then we had diamond dash which was also a more matching mechanic but a dash mechanic um, we had tropicats which, which was a match game and we had many more tropicats uh, uh, sorry um, prototypes that we killed in the process so um, I think the, the, the hidden object was really just one studio, one tiny entity mm. within Vuga. It was called Adventure Studio back then, which was also my cradle where I was raised as a PM, right? So I came from the Adventure <laughs> Studio. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> um, and uh, um, that's, that's kind of hidden object somewhere, but many other mechanics and many other um, experiences on the other hand. And um, I have the honor to work with uh, um, Christopher as a lead designer who is um, at Vuga as employee number one. I think he was the first intern hired next to the founders wow. and worked <laughs> on uh, Diamond Dash back then. He worked probably even on Bubble Island. He worked on Copycat. So he comes with lots of um, match three experience. Mm. And um, through the other, we also even had a Futurama game, which was a matching game at some point. Um, so um, we got really experienced level designers out of these projects and game designers. And um, we started the puzzle engine that we work with already with those projects. Um, and uh, we have it set up so that different teams can use it. Um, in the yeah. end, so this is like. Were you guys able to to take and, and kind of copy over any of those levels that like, you know, worked already or did you have to kind of rewrite everything from scratch? No, we had to, the levels were uh, redone from scratch because um, we identified specific issues with how levels were set up, for example, in Tropicats. And also, um, I, I, I forgot a big game, Jelly Splash. I don't know if you know Jelly Splash, but it was like a line uh, drawing uh, similar to Best Fiends mechanic. Um, mm -hmm. So the, for every game, the level dynamics were very different. Um, and so we had to come up with our way. And um, our initial direction was also very different from it was uh, back, back uh, today, what it is today. So we... Um, revisited all design pillars for match three levels and i think we touched every level many many times at least 10 times i would say so um i think the the level design team is doing an amazing job and really iterating iterating taking team feedback iterating looking at the data iterating um so it's a lot of work and um we uh, we even we i think one of the biggest projects after the f2e was reshuffling all the objectives and uh, blockers that we in, um, that we introduced in the game because we saw that um, especially in the beginning of the game the cognitive load of the player was quite high because we tried to um, make it to show them the most innovative uh, mechanic early on in the match three plus the story plus new type of game right so I think we asked too much of the player early on so um, we took a step back a little bit with the match we try to make it fun but not as cognitive heavy for the player and so this entire reshuffling of all the mechanics because you also have this pace of difficult you can't just put the the levels from 2 to 50 to suddenly 250 right you can't just move that because there's also like a, a learning curve that you want to establish mm -hmm. so over the course of i think four months we reshuffled all the levels completely reworked them iterated them again so um, <laughs> constantly do you, do you guys utilize uh, any sort of mechanic where you have like multiple versions of a level or you can make the levels like easier like i i swear that they do this in real match i don't know for sure but like if i played a level 20 times and i failed on like the 20th time 
they'll like just give me this like almost freebie on the level or maybe I just get lucky or something but then I like finally beat it and I like I think they do that because if they realize that a player gets stuck at this level eternally they're just going to churn out and stop playing the game so you know do you guys utilize anything like that? We have a, a dream of building like this golden path for a player um, <laughs> that everyone gets exactly the experience that they want. Um, I think um, in reality, uh, the match three engine is a huge luck game. Right? You end up how you end up. Yeah. And uh, of course, we are thinking about how we can control this better. Um, but uh, in our game, what we see is that lots of players actually don't want to play a level more than once. So those players that pay, they pay after one fail already because they just want to continue in the story. Yeah. And um, it feels sometimes like they don't even care if they buy then again five moves or five, like they just want to finish the level. They don't want to play it again. Yeah. And so investing too much time into like... Uh, what happens when you replay the level after 10 times is seems a bit senseless right now. Yeah. Uh, but it's definitely a topic that we look into. That makes sense. Um, okay. Uh, jump back up a little bit. Like why even try to launch a casual match three? Like why aren't we playing another, you know, merge story driven game? I think um, again, the um, match three, market is just so big and so one-sided so we just saw the opportunity there Um, I think you had the podcast um, uh, about uh, um, love and pies Um, (laughs) he said that the the market they want to grow the market and that's something that we try to do with hidden object as well but there's a limitation to how much you can grow a market and how fast you can grow the market and um, there's so much happening in the merch area right now that we just felt like we have zero expertise and Vuga with merch games like getting yep. into it and doing it right is even a bigger gamble than looking for this hole in this really huge match free market and see what are the audiences there that are underserved and try to get maybe a small chunk from a huge pie. Uh, rather uh, trying to get a big chunk from a very small pie right so that was kind of the strategic decision behind it maybe again still insane because uh, of course the um, the competition is fierce um, but the monetization aspect just works so you don't really need to have thousand layers on top of a match three to monetize and we also, we don't want to monetize the story. For us, the story is the reward. It's something mm. that players enjoy and consume. And we didn't want to have like an episode uh, type of game or choices type of game where you have to pay for the interesting content. And um, then the, the big, best match of a good monetization, monetizing core was the best uh, to choose this kind of match three. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, tell me a little bit about like the the biggest challenges you guys faced. I, I think that's the biggest challenge: <laughs> the market, the competition, the uh, um, user acquisition. Um, we uh, had IDFA drop upon us right in between before we globally launched. Um, keeping the team uh, motivated, uh, besides maybe some not so good periods, right? So when you fail, when you don't ha- see the results that you wanted to see. Um, this is a constant challenge and um, really always checking your own sanity. Does this still make sense what we're trying to achieve here? Um, I think in this very competitive market, but I think it would be the same even if we would have not a match three game, right? I think any game developer right now is struggling and even the big companies that have huge hit games, they struggle to release the next hit game. And to actually grow it, even though they're great games, right? So some of the um, uh, games that we see from big developers are really fun. They still can't scale it to the point. Um, Also, Homescapes doesn't have the same high KPIs as a Gardenscapes. Um, So it's, you know, creating a hit game is, is not really science. It's also a huge portion of luck. Yeah. And um, I can say I have the best team behind me and still, let's see if, if we still talk about the same game next year <laughs> or in three years, right? Because it's really yeah. still a huge effort and uh, um, casual games is not 
the fun space that it used to be when I joined. <laughs> so, so talk to me a little bit about, um, I mean, during the soft launch, you were in three, you know, like tier one markets, and I'm sure you had to have pretty decent sized campaigns running continuously, especially if you wanted to actually have, you know, decent data on your KPIs to say nothing about monetization KPIs, where you even need more players. Um, you know, that was probably a, a pretty pricey endeavor. Um, and you've got this big team also probably pretty pricey, you know, based in Berlin and stuff. Um, what sort of support did you guys have from, you know, Wuga and Playtika to like, have these ongoing like UA tests that were probably more costly than if you could be running them in like, you know, India or whatnot going on. Um, and maybe for a team that doesn't have a lot of runway for, you know, like a startup or something like that, like, would you recommend for a story driven game that like you have to be in a tier one market to get this feedback or, you know, could you have done it differently? So also, I mean, having Buga and Platika in the back is definitely helpful in terms of resources but it's not like that we were like oh, oh for sure get us thousand new users per day in three markets um, uh, we we also didn't want to do that because we wanted to um, spend where it makes sense and when I talked about this huge FTUE revamp we told Mark, like the marketing and UA team don't get users for us if you want to test something and you think you can learn something fine but don't get users for us. We will right now not look at the data. We're just closed up and focused on tripping <laughs> an update. Yeah. And uh, we were fine with them stopping the campaigns. And then at another time, we were like, okay, right now we need any type of user. Don't look for quality. Any type of user is fine right now because we just want to test the FTUE. And for this, we don't need great users, right? And at another time, we were like, can we really... Uh, invest profitably into this game so let's try to imitate business as usual on the UIA side and try to really scale up campaigns and focus campaigns and optimize campaigns and uh, so we went through these different phases and um, I think in another studio I would probably ensure that there's some resource to really test the water so maybe it's for maybe we tried it for a month maybe the studio can try it for a week to do business as usual uh, because it's it can be a difference between day and night if you really try to like get any user or quality users into your game and um you need to do these learnings early and you need to um yeah, in this fierce competition, you need to come with the funds to really test it. Otherwise, uh, um, it may be even more expensive to keep any team for mm. too long and try to globally launch it. Like if you want to do some global launch campaigns, they are also expensive. Maybe you're wasting more money, not knowing what happens actually when you not test it before, right? So yeah, yeah, cool. Um Let's talk a little bit about player feedback, because it sounds like you guys used this very early and you used multiple channels and, and spent a lot of time, you know, talking to, to players. Um, what sort of, you know, and I hear a lot of people, especially related to like surveys and stuff and being like, oh, you can't trust survey data. Like players don't actually know what you want. You've got to, you know, if you ask them, they're going to say, oh, I want a faster horse, but really they need a car. Um, so, you know, what types of questions did you guys ask in surveys and then how did you uh, glean useful information from, you know, these types of things? Working with experts in the field is always helpful. So I would call my um, our publishing department, first of all, an expert in this because they also frequently run surveys on Peril and June Journey, as you said. They are like really connected there with the audience and they have a good feeling for the audience. So involving them is key. Then don't just trust one source of information. So um, we would run sometimes the same survey with different tools and audiences just to validate. So, for example, um, uh, as I said, initially, the male colleagues didn't really like the game. They gave us really poor ratings. And so we started having always some male um, uh, respondents in the service as well to understand, is this really an audience that just doesn't like us or is it not their genre or what's happening here? And um, what we saw was that 
a man really enjoys stories. So uh, uh, in all the service, we're like, we thought we're making a, a, a game for women only. And, um, but our key selling point, the story is also attractive to men. Yeah. Um, and um, when we saw this in one survey, we validated it with another survey and with another tool and agency. And um, we saw it everywhere. And at first, again, didn't make sense because again, our male colleagues were so critical. Um, but as we refined the game, refined the match three experience, refined the story, um, when we globally launched, I would say we got almost 50% reviews from, from players with male names, right? You never know who's behind it. Yeah. But we suddenly <laughs> had all kinds of Johns and Jacks writing amazing reviews for Switchcraft. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. Like by trying to be better and getting better KPIs, we also managed to capture some kind of male audience for us. I won't say that we have 50-50 split in the audience, but we do have a significant amount of men that really play the game. And we also see this now reflected. Um, and Vuga, we have like a, a channel, a public channel for Switchcraft where everyone can post us any type of feedback, bug reports, things they like, things that they don't like. And um, we have a huge engagement with my colleagues in posting updates and, and giving reflect on their experience with the story, like how they like one character, but don't like another character. So this was an interesting journey. And for us really like using multiple channels, validating your findings, run a survey again. We work with Quantic Foundry uh, for an in-game survey. How do you phrase the questions in a way that they are uh, um, not not, not leading yeah <laughs> not um, we phrase things like do you want to have more or less of or significant less of this part of the game um, we try to also have open questions like a constant question that I'm asking is like what are the things that you truly enjoy about this uh, game and what are the things that you wish would be better or that you didn't like didn't enjoy mm -hmm. so um, not even asking a specific question, but having open uh, questions like this helped us. And um, yeah, just uh, give them the experience. So we had one particular topic that was dividing us and the team. Um, we try to also sometimes create some edgy content. And uh, early on, there was like uh, one part of the team that said, oh, the writers shouldn't put so many assholes and <laughs> other swear words <laughs> into the story. <laughs> this is putting me off. I don't want to read this. And then the other ones were like, but that's the character, right? That's the tone of this character. He is an edgy character. Yeah. And it wouldn't be this character if he wouldn't swear all the time. And so we discussed what should be the tonality and then we took a scene from the game and we built it twice. So once with the original um, um, tonality and once with a tuned down tonality with less swear words. And we ran a survey where they had to watch a video of the scene. And then we asked different types of feedback questions and also open questions. And we didn't ask about the tonality in the survey. Like we didn't ask if this is the issue. We The survey was structured in a way that mm. they think about something else. Yeah. And then we just analyzed how many players from their own, like in the open uh, questions said that it was too much swearing. And so we could see then by age group how this may be off-putting for different players. So the older they got, the more they were put off by the swearing and the more often they mentioned it on um, themselves. And then we could also see how many players say that they don't like the art style. And then um, we looked at the recommendations before watching the video, just looking at the static banner and then after watching yeah. the, uh, the video. And um, those people that didn't like the sounds or the uh, didn't like that there are no sounds or that didn't like the art, their recommendation uh, score didn't drop as much as those players that uh, didn't like the swear words. So mm. even though there were two groups that complained about something, the one group that complained actually felt that this had a very negative uh, impression for the brand and for the product that they're looking at. And so um, 
this made us realize that uh, okay we should put some boundaries in place and then we <laughs> went through all the swear words that you can possibly have and reflect those that are okay to you sometimes infrequently <laughs> this can be a more common swear word so i that was a fun exercise from a product standard that's point really of cool <laughs> but it was also a good way to align the writing and um, the other team members around like what's the tonality that we're going for and why yeah that's great so i have kind of one topic left and it's a little bit of a big one but um, and, and that really is uh, diversity so you know tell me about how you guys approach diversity um, why you did it and and how you kind of tried to add that into switchcraft yeah I think I, I touched upon it a little bit earlier I I think nobody ever sat down and said we want to achieve a certain diversity in the game it's more um, we want to create emotions and we want to write about things that we as a team care about. And so we naturally put parts of who we are into the game. And since we are a very diverse team, so again, we are from 12 different countries. Uh, we have every gender represented. Um, we have um, LGBTQ plus uh, representatives. We are neurodiverse. Um, some have visible or invisible disabilities. So in the team, we already have a very diverse uh, background. And um, we try to think about the characters like, why is this character white? Why is this character black? It's, it's like, does this matter for them? Um, do we have somebody that's representing this type? Um, we had this. Uh, um, we have this character in a wheelchair who's adorable. She's so strong. She's one of the strongest and wittiest characters in the game. And um, she also has her love affair there. And like, she's really somebody <laughs> that's key uh, to this uh, some parts of the story. And she's really great. And it was so hard to use our story engine to display her well because she's shorter than everyone else. <laughs> And we had to find solutions for shorter characters because we also have kids in, uh, as characters in the game. And with the narrative boxes on top, like how do you have them not just pick up? Yeah. <laughs> we have had to some kind of find solutions for this. And uh, another team might have said, okay, this is taking us too much time, right? We need to focus. We need to deliver the content. We need to deliver the story. And we were like, no. This is the character and we have to make it work for her and for anyone else who is shorter or, you know, like uh, this is something that came just so natural because nobody wanted to sacrifice this kind of diversity that we were going for. And um, yeah, I think we like somebody asked me once, why don't you have the, the full black main character and the the answer is well we don't have like we have lots of mixed race people in the team like we have people with uh, uh um african background but they grew up in the west right and how should they write the story of uh, a true black character right and so i think this is this is something that was more like a natural process of extending what the team already is representing into the game and um, we then um, actually afterwards, after we heard from so many players that they said, well, this game is so much representing me and I feel so great about playing this because it's really good representation of diversity. Uh, we asked for a study. So uh, we looked um, with Navic into this and we analyzed the top 50 uh, casual puzzle games. And we looked at the characters that they use for their marketing materials. Um, and um, we saw that uh, um, only 20% of the main characters were um, BIPOC. Um, so black, indigenous, uh, or people of color. And uh, only 4% of the main cast. So um, that uh, was pretty uh, um, low for us. And we thought, okay, why is not why are they not doing this so much? But, but I think it's just a conversation that um, we need to start. And um, I think this happened also for TV, for uh, other types of media where we saw that there's just an underrepresentation. 
and where for hopefully the next games companies are doing, they look more into this, okay, how do we have a more natural representation because the world is not just white, right? Uh, and it's not just straight and it's not just uh, enabled in everything and it's not perfect, right? And so I think um, we really, it was an ambition early on that we don't want to recreate a plastic world that makes people feel bad because we are yeah. a joyful place. We want to be relaxed and we want, want people to feel good about themselves. And I think their representation is key, um, of course, as well. Yeah, that's great. Well, I, I know we're coming to the end of our time here. So, you know, this is the Mastering Retention Podcast, of course. So I always like to ask, you know, what's one tip or trick or insight you found towards uh, keeping players, you know, engaged in your game for longer? How do you keep them around? I think the key part, and that's something that I also tried to emphasize on, is these emotions. So um, emotions are making any type of media memorable. Um, emotions will make people talk about your product, your game, and they also connect them emotionally with what's happening in the game. So even if there's no story in your game, you, your game can create emotions. Um, a funny example I find is the, the butler in the Garnscapes when he's like doing the slow clap. And most people I know are completely annoyed by him, but this annoying emotion still makes it very memorable right and yeah. so it's not about just positive emotions it's emotions itself in any yeah. form or shape really make you memorable and uh, in that sense uh, will make players spend more time with your product if there are emotions and um, yeah don't be afraid of failing so i think the the, <laughs> the, the retention part is the hardest part um, I think once you have a retaining game, monetizing it is not that difficult, but yeah. the retention is the hardest part. And even if it may not look great in the beginning, sit down, analyze the problems and um, be patient with yourself and finding the right solutions. So, <laughs> uh, don't give up too early. I love it. I love it. Well, Annalie, this has been uh so great. I, I really appreciate you joining me today. Um, if people do have, you know, questions or they want to learn more about Wuga or whatnot, like, is there a good way for them to get in contact with you? Mm, I think the best way is over LinkedIn. So you find Perfect. my profile under Anneli Biernat. And uh, yeah, I think I'm not the master in all the crafts that I talked about, but uh, if I can connect you uh, um, with anyone in my team or from Vuga, uh, I will also try to be of help. And we have lots of open jobs, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Check them out. Well, thank you so much. And we'll talk soon. Thank you, Tom.